Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Election Day 2021 was two weeks ago tomorrow, but in New Jersey, Republican gubernatorial candidate Jack Cittarelli only got around to conceding to Governor Murphy on Friday. Nearly 200 countries adopted the Glasgow Climate Pact on Saturday as the U.N. Climate Change Conference COP26 wrapped up. The third year of the global COVID-19 will begin in a couple of months, and that will roughly coincide with the heating up of the 2022 midterm election campaigns. There's a lot of news, and when we have a lot to discuss, we often go to Bob Henley. He reports on leading political and economic issues for Public Radio, Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations. He's joined us many times on this show, and now he's hosting a new morning show here on WBAI called What's Going On. Bob also has a new book out, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? It's published by Democracy at Work, and I'm very pleased that it brings Bob Henley back to our show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course, Bob. Um, <laughs> on Friday, Jack Cittarelli, and I, I would have pronounced it Chattarelli, but what do I know, finally conceded that he'd lost to uh, Phil Murphy. Do we know what prompted him to finally change his mind? I think that the numbers that were coming in um, just showed there was no way to generally uh, uh, catch uh Governor Murphy, um, it was much closer than polling had indicated. I had written a piece uh, for Insider NJ that was picked up by Salon two weeks ago that noticed that things were tightening. I think more importantly that um, there is just was a shift in tone in politics. One of the things that went underreported was that in New Jersey, I think it's the only state that has both Democrats and Republicans in the congressional delegation, we had something like a Haley's Common event where all 12 House members, that includes Republican Chris Smith and uh, Jeff Andrew from um, Southern Jersey, a, a strong Trump accolade, really risked um, the uh, enmity of um, Minority Leader McCarthy and crossed over and voted for the $1. trillion infrastructure bill and job training bill. So... I do think this, I know this is not getting attraction on MSNBC or Fox because the idea that Trump is a virus would be receding. Well, gosh, what will people do? But at least in this little corner of the world, New Jersey, it seemed that there's a kind of return to pre-Trump normalcy. So I think that also we had Steve Sweeney, a very powerful Senate majority leader who lost to a, a previous unknown truck driver, a Democrat, very powerful Democrat. He conceded. So I think that it was back to normal, and I think uh, Jack Cittarelli wanted to preserve his ability to run again. And he's announced that he's planning to run for governor the next election. Uh, Getting back to something you just said, 13 Republicans, four from New York State, two from New Jersey, supported the uh, infrastructure bill. Uh, Nicole Malliotakis, who represents Staten Island and Southern Brooklyn, was one of those 13 Republicans. Um, and she's faced a backlash over her vote, even though she's been Crazy. A, a Trump loyalist for, for the most part. And as you point out, Jeff Van Drew, Drew um, who also from New Jersey's 2nd Congressional District, also voted for the bill. And like Malliotakis, um, he'd objected to Biden's Electoral College victory, but 
He right. also voted for the infrastructure bill. So what's going on there? So I think what's happening is that um, there is, and it's very slow um, uh, process. And like I say, because we're in a media environment where it's about these corporate media things are driven by analytics. And so we know from Facebook that negative reaction, violent reaction leads. And so anytime that there's any kind of hint of resolution, it's going to get downplayed. So you have to be really paying very close attention. One of the things that's been going on, and the American labor movement was very big in the passage of this $1.2 trillion package, which has been pretty much reported as a um, a, a concrete and steel story about new airports, about rail lines. But it is, it represents the largest worker training uh, workforce uh, program that I, I've seen passed. So we're talking billions and tens of billions of dollars. To retrain the workforce. so And then it, it's, it's a trying. jobs bill also. Yeah, right, exactly. And so every percentage of federal money that's going to go to locales is going to have in it a piece for retraining the workforce. And so I do think that it's something that it became a joke. I mean, Trump, how many weeks was he going to talk about infrastructure week? And it just didn't happen. And I just think that this is a case of where the ground is slowly maybe imperceivably shifting where people are feeling like, let's just get on with it. Yeah, but on the other hand, another example, Andrew Garbarino, a uh, Republican representative from Long Island, has received death threats for voting for the bill. Um, the man making the threats has been arrested. Uh, now, there's been widespread support among Republicans for, oh, well, that's a whole other issue, the attacks. I'll get right. to that later. But... Um, you would have thought that the that people would, as you point out, would have loved this bill uh, because it means jobs and also means fixing the roads and the bridges and all right. those other things. Instead, somebody receives a death threat for voting for it. And then, well, actually, and then we have a couple of people, a few progressives from the Democratic Party, uh, who also voted, uh, who voted against it. Right. And that that was an active, uh, a symbolic act by certain members of the progressive uh, caucus who wanted to signal that um, they had wanted it done closer to passage of the one point eight trillion dollar build back better bill, which I'm sure we'll get into, which is slimmed down the Weight Watchers version from the three point seven trillion dollar um, initial build back better plan. And so um, I will say to you that um, as as things get back to normal, you're going to see increasing noise from the reactionary right. That's all they've got, right? It's not like they have an alternative infrastructure plan. And so, I mean, all I can say to you is, and I know this idea of connecting everyday experience to uh, to reporting, I was in getting the oil changed on my car, and it was it was pretty well populated. We were all wearing masks. And there was a guy watching the TV news on there going totally Trump anti-vax. And this is just a, you know, mammoth middle class. This is like a Honda dealer. These are people that have like school teachers. These are older cars being serviced. These aren't wealthy people, but they all kind of look like the guy. Like, really? Like there was just a sense that he was an embarrassment. It was more like someone having some kind of, you know, uh, that they were intoxicated or drunk in public. I do think that as more people get vaccinated, 
and as we see the country moving uh, forward, that there's a kind of quiet consensus is building. And again, it's not going to make headlines. It's not going to make anyone's career to report about it. But that's what I'm seeing. Well, you mentioned also uh, the fact that Senate, New Jersey Senate President Stephen Sweeney lost to Edward Durr, a commercial truck driver with no elected political experience. Right. Um, Durr sounds extremely conservative, but he barely campaigned. And on the other hand, wasn't Sweeney pretty conservative for a Democrat? Well, absolutely. And that's one of the other things that, you know, when you uh, and that's why it's important not to do uh, political science in the aggregate, because it's true that New Jersey is a blue state. Look closer and you'll see that in 2016 and then in 2020, Trump has very much built a base. There's certain counties where he added to. So while it's true that Biden won the most votes of any president, Donald Trump came in second in that sweepstakes. And so in that southern part of New Jersey, you have a, a very interesting mix. It's also the place that Jeff Andrew came from, who was a Democrat who crossed over to kiss Trump's ring. If you look at that district, it's one of those districts down there, Cumberland County, then the southern part of the state, one of the poorest. And it's a place where in 2008, in 2012, it went for Barack Obama. It was very excited. It had uh, an animated African-American uh, base that came out. And then what happened was in 2016, it stayed home. And that that was replicated in 20 similar congressional districts around the country. Hence, we had President Trump. So that's a kind of swing district. And so if you have a combination of an animated, um, very conservative base that has some overhang of white supremacy, at the same time, as you have in the case in, with the election with Murphy, it was as close as it was because there was no real get out the vote in the African-American community. They just didn't do it. And so it was a, that was the combination of things that resulted in Sweeney losing. But it's interesting. Uh, in the past, we have discussed how the southern New Jersey was uh, abolitionist, while northern New Jersey right. had, you know, had slavery. It was the Quakers. And now it totally flip-flopped. There are no Quakers down there anymore. Well, it's, it's a legacy issue. And so there's, there's some places where you'll go into, um, I'm thinking uh, down in particular in that outside of Philadelphia, East of the Delaware, you'll run into an area where there's a preserved Quaker kind of vibe, right? Stone houses and the rest, agricultural fields and, you know, uh, uh, stone walls. And then there'll be, you know, like Gadsden flags and, you know, Trump. So it is it's an unusual place. And so I would say that and there are also this vehement hatred of, of uh, President Biden, you know, dump Biden and the rest. But that being said. There's this this death event we've been through, and I, I don't think there's enough discussion about it as a, a really we don't have anybody around really from the last time we went through this kind of traumatic event of of losing what, like three quarters of a million people in the United States, you know, over 35 million people infected. I do think that you're seeing a reconsideration of things in a profound way. I think that's why you're seeing a renegotiation of the social contract about work. I mean, we've never seen anything like the Great Resignation. Yeah, sure, the strike by labor movements is a big deal. But even bigger, something you can see from space is Americans working, walking away from their workplace. 
And we'll get to that in a moment, but I was wondering along the lines of what we were talking about, haven't some Democratic leaders and pundits tended to blame progressives for this switch and and try to nudge the party uh, at least partly to the right? Well, of course, what's happened is, and this gets into what happened with the amazing shrinking of Build Back Better, which was this $3.7 trillion plan, and then it got downsized. It got downsized not because of the incalcitrant Republicans that are kind of like just, you know, taking up space and totally want to see them, you know, nothing happen with Biden's presidency, but internally within the Democratic Party. So you have certain moderates, Josh Gottheimer in, in uh, the Congress in New Jersey, Senator Manchin, uh, Senator Sinema, uh, raising the concern that the bill was too expensive and then pushing back on the tax policy. And what it was the tax policy that Democrats had to drop first was the one that in some ways is most significant for working people. There's the Biden administration had initially wanted uh, a look-see when billions of dollars are transferred, when someone leaves this earthly plane and they've got a gazillion shares of Amazon and they're going to pass it along to Junior. The White House wanted to be able to tax it at that point of transfer. That's when the defenders of capital and wealth said, no, 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 no. Let it just go on and pass. So that's what we're talking about here. Fighting dynastic wealth. It's something even, you know, back in, in, in Britain that they were concerned about. And so that's what the battle was about here. The build back better. It's not just the question of what it's going to do, but how is it paid for? And in that, it offers a chance to flip the pyramid here for my entire lifetime. And I, I think of my poor father worked so hard with six kids. He, he went to his grave in a world where work was punished in our tax policy. If you worked, you a, a huge chunk of what you made was taken out. If you had idle capital and was going to invest it in LLC, whatever, whatever, you got by. And so our entire tax policy, Leonard, my whole adult life, has promoted wealth accumulation and concentration and punished working people. And it allowed, now, it allowed right. people to pass anything, the, the wealth right. on to their, to their children or whatever. Uh, exactly. And so, well, first of all, let me tell people who I'm talking to. It's Robert <laughs> Henley, who, uh, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, writes for Salon, the chief leader, other news organizations, has a book called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? Uh, just recently started hosting a new morning show on WBAI called What's Going On? We'll get to a lot of that in uh, in a moment. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, um, streaming live at WBAI.org. I just want to get back to Edward Durr for a moment because reporters keep sure. on referring to him as a truck driver as if that's a problem. Do experts at <laughs> universities or inside the Beltway feel threatened when average workers win elections? And are we do we have something of a double standard here? Because um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, waited <laughs> tables, attended bar before she ran f right. for Congress in 2018. It's a fair point. And I think that I mean one of the things it looks like he had uh, Mr. Durr had a track record of Islamic slurs and um uh, I guess he convened a meeting to meet with Islamic leaders um, in his district. So uh, I do think that there is this thing, and we say that it's a democracy and that we encourage people to engage. And you're right. Um, I do think that um, what's what people find threatening, uh, people in the establishment, I guess, is that 
Uh, and this comes from the fact that there's an increasing disconnect between how news is gathered and, and the people uh, and, and, and the general population. And so that's why they don't see these kinds of things coming. We talked at the time, I think, about why Donald Trump was missed, right? Because in 2016, the media was reporting, the Beltway I-95 media was reporting that there was a recovery. And yet, if you went granular and you looked at National Association of Counties, not a Marxist front organization, you found only like 10, 15 percent of the counties were actually in a full recovery. And so that's the problem here is that we've lost this local reporting function. You have things reported top down and everything's done in the aggregate. So you would miss the the truck drivers in ascension. And that's not good in a democracy. As Democrats were struggling in the elections in New Jersey, didn't taxi drivers in New York win some financial relief? Oh, well, that's But that came after a hunger strike, didn't it? Is that what you got to do? Right. (laughs) That's right. Um, the the Taxi Workers Alliance. This has been this is an organization started in the in the late 1990s, and it's part of. And I tell this story a bit in Stuck Nation. Um, what you have had always had, um, particularly in New York City, is the labor movement and immigrants. There's a, a great potential synergy there to advance um, the social condition of workers. That's just proven. And so, in the case of the Taxi Workers Alliance, they were organized and. They have been fighting the fact that for for many years, the city of New York granted something called a taxi medallion. It was mm-hmm. something that meant that you could uh, pick up uh, ride riders throughout New York and New York City would protect the value of that medallion. And so the price of it during the Bloomberg administration, it, it went up to like in excess, well, excess of a million dollars. And the New York Times published a study that cho- showed that the Bloomberg administration was aware that it was the price they were getting and putting in the city coffers was far and above what it was really worth. And then there's a collusion between some credit unions where they targeted specifically immigrant drivers, saddled them with this huge debt. And then the Bloomberg administration, some high level officials went to work for Uber and Lyft, Leonard. And then they went around collapsing the very same industry they'd built up. The taxi cab uh, drivers were getting killed by this debt. Several actually committed suicide. One came up to the gates of City Hall and shot himself. Um, they have been organizing around this. The Taxi Workers Alliance has some 21,000 taxi workers. They've come together. They did manage to organize sufficiently that it got the attention of Senator Schumer, who himself, of course, is doing his calisthenics, warming up for a, a run, no doubt, for office. And they were able to come up with a debt relief plan that reduces their debt from something like 600,000 average to like 200,000, which permit them to continue to drive and service their debt. So it's a big win and it came out of an act of solidarity. So that's one example. But they didn't get political support. Uh, They had to do something dramatic like that. And the largest holder of taxi loans, Marblegate Asset Management has agreed to cap the amount that each taxi driver owes. but Marblegate had bought 3,000 medallions for about $350 million in February 2020. Uh, that's less than $120,000 per medallion. So even with the deal, won't Marblegate make a profit? Well, of course. And that also goes to part of the backstory today is capitalism, isn't it, Grand? Um, one of the things about this is that uh, what has to be looked at, and I'm sure there will be follow-up investigations, This much of this happened as a result of credit unions like Melrose, credit unions that are 
nonprofit entities have a special advantage that created by unions and working people. Some nefarious operators, some of whom ended up going to jail, participated in kind of like a Wall Street real estate scam where they ran up the price of the thing and then crashed it and then pulled out. And then, of course, we have a society where vultures or, you know, hedge funds, whatever you, whatever you want to use it, vulture funds, whatever, they come and swoop up the carcass. That's America. Uh, in this case, uh, why it works is that thanks to tens of billions of dollars that Schumer was able to get to New York City out of the pandemic relief, the city of New York had the room, and this was the breakthrough from the Taxi Workers Alliance, to backstop and guarantee those loans. And that, so, yes, it's true that Marblegate is making a killing, but it's not going to be at the expense of the drivers like it was going to be. Well, Bear Avi Desai, the director of the Taxi Workers Alliance, said that the victory shows that the union movement can build and win with popular support. But uh, I, I've uh, just been reading about uh, unions in America, and uh, it, they are in serious trouble. Actually, uh, union membership has declined by uh, 50%. It was 20% of people were members of unions in 1983, and now it's 10.8% in 2020. Um, What have your labor union sources told you is causing that decline? So so I think if you pull back, you're right. In the broad sweep of things, before PATCO, and that's when Ronald Reagan summarily fired all of the air traffic controllers in the early 1980s, there has been a decline year to year. There's been the last couple of years, a bump up a little bit. Um, unions have had some success in the public sector. So it's true. 10% of the private sector workforce uh, is uh, organized in the public sector. It's over a third and showing signs of growth, particularly in the healthcare fields. Uh, one of the things is that unions have had an impact in all kinds of ways that for instance, in New York state, the fight for 15, that had an impact for workers who will never have a union card, right? And so they are punching above their weight. In the current moment, politically, they have a Secretary of Labor, uh, Marty Walsh, who came out of Boston, has a labor union tradition, pretty much sponsored by the Boston Firefighters and the International Association of Firefighters who backed President Biden We're seeing in the bills coming out of Washington the role of labor in an unprecedented way. And, of course, the corporate news media doesn't report about this because they they themselves have a nasty fight about unionization in their own newsrooms. So they don't want to reflect on it. But just take this this uh, infrastructure bill that we just talked about, the one the one point two trillion one that's by nominally bipartisan. That even includes a requirement that any place with mass transit come up with a proactive plan to protect transit workers from assault. So, you know, and then also built into the Build Back Better, that's the $1.8 trillion social safety net bill, they're talking about universal pre-K and child care, but also at a living wage for the people that are delivering that service. So this is all driven by labor's influence, which you won't really hear about. But John Oliver did a show last night in which he talked about how there are companies that actually uh, sh- teach uh, the the the, uh, the companies that are faced with uh, union organizing how to fight it, and some right. of these campaigns have gotten rather nasty. Uh, but there's a lot of money involved, uh, and they they claim in, in those campaigns that the unions stand to make a lot of money. 
they don't point out, well, if you don't organize, we stand to make a lot of money. Right. And one of the things about this, we saw this in the fight in uh, Alabama with Amazon mm-hmm. and RW, uh, the retail uh, wholesale workers union. And th- these techniques We've seen this included, in the John Deere fight as well. Right. And, and, and in the case of what they did in Amazon, they uh, actually like targeted individuals who worked for them, mm-hmm. tried to call them from the rest of their colleagues, then uh, punish, punish them publicly put them into these meetings where they would draw them out. I mean, there's no doubt, but I do think that there is the Gallup poll shows that 65% of Americans support unions. That's the highest since 1965. And so also you have to look at how Americans are are voting with their feet in terms of their own employment. So you have over 4 million, like some 3% of people walking away. They're not represented by anyone, but their own soul. And they're coming up with this feeling that they're aware of wealth concentration. They, they and this thing is, if you work through this uh, pandemic and you had to expose yourself to this and you had colleagues that got sick and colleagues that died, you are reassessing the entire social contract about work. And so labor is helping to augment that conversation. I see it every day. Don't you talk a lot about labor issues on your new morning show on WBAI? Well, it's the Monday space that I'm in because I'm, uh, we have folks across yeah. the whole, uh, it's a, a mix of folks, a very diverse group of people. But you're do doing that Monday slot. mornings at seven yeah. o'clock. Right. And that is back to work, back to school. It's, we had, um, um, uh, Vinny Alvarez this morning, who's, uh, the president of New York City Central Labor Committee. It is labor oriented. Uh, we had something on, uh, related to Dr. Um, Stephanie Hoops, who leads the, the United Way's Alice Project, which focuses on asset limited income constrained, but employed households across the United States. Those are tens of millions of single mothers who've really had a very difficult time through the pandemic for whom this build back better is essential because one of the things that's happened out of this pandemic, women were forced, some two million were forced out of, um, the workplace by taking care of the kids because of the collapse of public education. And so they, in order to help them regain their economic footing in the system, the system has to step up to at least the standard of a small Western democracy in Europe. Well, interestingly, uh, getting back to the infrastructure bill, which the House passed uh, 10 days ago, the Senate, of course, passing it in August, the Senate vote was 69 to 30, um, which might suggest that in, in rare instances, bipartisanship is still possible. And although Donald Trump opposed the bill, Mitch McConnell actually supported it. Well, yeah, and I don't think that they could continue that kind of thing is. And I think in McConnell's district is uh, Senate says in his state in Kentucky, there was a notorious bridge that had had problems. I mean, when you look at um, the famous um uh, the Association of Civil Engineers report card that I've been writing on, gosh, I don't know how long, every year it seems. And they were rating critical parts of infrastructure as D, you know, C minus. That had become something that, uh, and you'll see it right now in what's happening with the um, real-time delivery crisis, right? This infrastructure thing, the inability of um, the distribution chain to handle the volume, it's shifted a bit because of the redefining of our marketplace since the pandemic and shopping at home became such a dominant force. But this is an, and I do think that nobody thought they could go back 
to their constituents without something in terms of um, the fiscal infrastructure. Now, that said, we're in for just a, perhaps the most important week coming up uh, of the Biden presidency, the young Biden presidency, uh, over the battle of this uh, $1.8 uh, trillion Build Back Better well, bill. Well, how will the infrastructure bill help New Jersey and New York? Will there be money for a new tunnel under the Hudson? Uh, and um, uh, and adding to that, if Chris Christie hadn't torpedoed the tunnel in 2010, would it already have been completed? Well, I, that's true. And one of the things about um, this this whole question about New Jersey and New York, um, this implementation, and this is what's such a challenge, uh, just the other, I think just a few days ago, uh, New York State and Connecticut, New Jersey, agreed with the framework on how to split the money from the last American uh, uh, coronavirus rescue bill, which is trying to help them make up for the revenue that their transit systems lost. So, um, so it is, it's very, there's a big challenge to get that much money out the door and not have it blow up in the form of all kinds of corrupt scandals. And, you know, that's, that's the key thing. Now, as far as this is why it's so important that people really get active and, and push for it at the county and state level. You have to be engaged. This is not a robotic thing that's going to happen where some magical conveyor belt coming into the beltway is going to reproduce what's required where you live. You have to go out and get the vacant. Christie cited costs to justify killing the tunnel. Are Republicans and Democrats, like Joe Manchin, objecting mostly to the costs of the, the Biden infrastructure plan? And, and if costs were a concern, why did Republicans and some Democrats oppose higher taxes on billionaires or enabling the IRS to collect what's already owed? I would say, I think it's, uh, I observed this this morning as I was typing up the news for the morning cast. One of the things that we do have to step back and look at the things we take for granted. So there's this huge battle about the $1.8 trillion investment in the American people that's over a decade. And then at the same time, the Senate is considering, um, in theater number two, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is bumping up against $800 billion. No controversy. Mm-hmm. We move it right through. That's the annual contribution to defense. No one says it's weird. So that's just one year, Leonard. So that's why I think that we have to connect these two things. Like, And so we have this automatic sense of how things are moving forward. And we just have to, we can't accept the fact um, that defense just continues to go up. And much of this money was borrowed, by the way. And you're exactly right. One of the things that they do is they... They talk about the cost, but the reality is they don't want to deal with this dynastic wealth transfer I'm talking about. They do not want to get in the way of the large donors who are banking on their ability to rent the political power structure. And they want to continue building these large fortunes so they can go to space on their own time. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Bob Henley, uh, you can uh, read him at 
on Twitter at StuckNation, also StuckNation.com, MuckRack.com slash Bob Henley, uh, TheChiefLeader.com, Salon.com slash Writer slash Bob Henley, and uh, read him in Salon, The Chief Leader, and other publications. Uh, hear him on BAI on Monday mornings and 7 o'clock on a show called What's Going On, and also um, read his new book, which is published by Democracy at Work called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? And, uh, Bob, you wanted to read a little excerpt from that book? Sure. This is kind of a brief labor history, and it's Chapter 2, Facing a Moral Understanding of Our History. We're adrift in the sea of time with nothing but the stars and planetary alignments to chart our way. Where we are is relative to where we were, but so much of our essential past can be hiding in plain sight or just beyond our lived comprehension. Consider a mass death event like the 1918-1920 Spanish flu pandemic, hardly ancient history. Yet until COVID, it remained an obscure tangent for academics about which a small group of people knew a lot, but most of us remained clueless. Just a century ago, it was a traumatic event that rocked the world, killing 50 million people on the planet and 675,000 here in the United States. It infected 500 million people, yet with the passage of time, it floated out to sea beyond the charts of our lived experience. That is, of course, until hundreds of thousands of Americans started dying from COVID. Fortunately for humanity, history is not a static thing. It's a living, breathing social construct that can be open-ended, dynamic, a conversation, if we have the moral courage to have it. Ah. Well, uh, <laughs> I want to get back to uh, the uh, taxing. A proposed tax on the unrealized gains of billionaires was scuttled. If billionaires can avoid taxes, whereas, and I, and I can't, that's for sure, <laughs> does that promote more concentration of wealth over generations, what you've been talking about, dynastic wealth? And aren't, and aren't most of the members of Congress millionaires or at least extremely wealthy? Well, and that's one of the things that's come out. Um, I've been tracking on a couple of Zoom calls with uh, Reverend Barber, the Poor People's Campaign, and Jeffrey Sachs, the economist from Columbia. Uh, and they have been really going after this fact that Manchin um, has really been blocking this stuff that would transform the lives of people of West Virginia, which has, um, according to Sachs, the lowest medium household income in the United States and the lowest life expectancy. And so that has been going on for a long time. Right, but the, the lowest life expectancy partly because of all the mining and uh, – and- A combination of things. I mean, one of the things that you have to look at is, uh, in general, in the United States, the three years leading up to the pandemic, our life expectancy in general declined. And the last time that happened was leading up to the Spanish uh, influenza around the First World War. There had been a deterioration that's ongoing. In the average health of American people, because the healthcare system is rationed based on your ability to pay. So there's more, there are sicker people walking around. And the remedy in healthcare is at a higher cost than anywhere else in the world. It's a miserable system that fails dramatically. And the pandemic is living proof of that. The fact that it, so many people died is the consequence that so many people were unhealthy to begin with. So wasn't Obamacare supposed to take care of some of that? Well, it was a slow walk. 
I mean, it, it was not universal health care. Uh, much of it was designed by uh, the health insurance companies and big pharma. Again, what we do best in the United States is wealth preservation, Leonard. You must have observed that, right? I mean, that's what we're good at. We're well, good at building massive fortunes. As far as the circumstance of the average people, well, not so good. And it, it had, was not pointed out much when Obama was proposing that, that it wasn't all that different from what Mitt Romney had <laughs> gotten enacted in Massachusetts when he was governor. Right. And that and that's what Romney I'm getting care. at. Is that, right. Exactly. One of the things that uh, any kind of after action report that happens here um Looking at now, I think I, I think the odds are we're going to hit a million people, sad to say, killed by COVID in the United States. I mean, considering the state of New Jersey, for a long time, we had the highest per capita death rate on the planet. That civilized, technologically advanced New Jersey, progressive blue and all of that. So when you dig down, why was that? Because we have tremendous health and wealth disparities in this country. And coronavirus is a disease of both. Right, and yeah. we lost. Let me let me just add this. Do you know who displaced us, who finally knocked New Jersey out of number one? Mississippi. Good, interesting state to be in competition with. Uh, aren't average Americans and workers taxed more than the wealthy, making ours a, a regressive tax system? Exactly. And so one of the things that's happened is, you know, from a – if you're a mainstream economist and you don't have any ideology and your idea is you want to see economic growth, right? The One of the things that they're talking about is the phrase they use in the corporate Wall Street journalism is a labor shortage. Of course, progressive economists would say that it's a wage shortage. But an objective fact is we're missing millions of people. The workforce petition patient rate is around like 61%. And in certain parts of the country, it's really an issue. They're really having trouble getting people to do this work. And and part of that comes from the fact that work just doesn't pay. And so if you want to incentivize work and you want to build your workforce back up, you make it worthwhile. You can't build great fortunes like the one Mike Bloomberg has got and Jeff Bezos has got if uh, without taking care of the mass population. And that's what's been going on here. And the pandemic really tore the cover off of that. Because it revealed that who were the people that were taking the risk? The essential workers, the undocumented people, the people that Trump had, you know, put into, uh, you know, this kind of uh, jaws of hell going after them. They were the people that were providing, uh, emptying the bedpans at the nursing homes. That's nice, right? Let's go after them. Those are the people that paid a price. We still don't know right now. Uh, how many people actually died as a consequence of being essential workers? Like this country can't even afford to ask that question because it would so enrage the population if they realized how much human experience had been squandered by capital, which didn't make sure that sufficient resources were set aside. I mean, this pandemic was predictable. We talked about it as it was happening. The Obama administration did work books, books on it. It was something that was foreseeable. And strangely, we weren't prepared. We were hanging on looking for a mask. I mean, look, we have to go back and remember that we're going to spend $800 billion on defense and the country was laid low by a lack of masks. Well, I wonder why there's been such strong resistance to raising the minimum wage right now in some places. What's it still at seven twenty five, seven fifty? 
an hour? Yes, in, in Iowa and in places, I think New Hampshire, there isn't one. It's and that was that was actually something where I, I talked to Reverend Barber. He was incensed. That came early on in in the Biden presidency, and there were several Democrats that didn't enable it. That was one of the key promises. I mean, I wanted to, you know, you had said something before about the politics around this, where you have uh, conservatives within Democratic Party and Republicans saying this is too expensive and that Democrats warn that if the progressives are in a prominent position, they're going to lose elections. Well, that just is it's a historical because as Reverend Barber points out, you have 140 million Americans who are you know under $50,000 a year. These are low wage, low wealth voters. Um, and in New Jersey alone, 400,000 of these voters were registered in 2020, but didn't turn out. In places where uh, the Poor People's Campaign tracked the turnout, they were dispositive in in the situation that happened in, in Georgia. And so when you saw the election of those two Democratic senators. So there's a tremendous sleeping giant, is what uh, Dr. Barber refers to, in the form of these voters that um, are both mainly white, but these are the folks that can – to, to transform the direction of the country. And that's who Democrats, they have to grow the electorate instead of continuing to fight over that elusive white suburban voter. What are they thinking today? Let's have another focus group, like enough already. Well, it's interesting that when uh, I see all this TV coverage about uh, companies uh, struggling to get enough people to work for them, the, the whole issue of 725 minimum wage doesn't come up. I mean, uh if you're looking for a job right now, th- that's almost like working for free. Well, what's happened is what I'm saying is that there's uh, sometimes a thousand dollars, twenty five hundred dollars signing bonus. Um, there is uh, one the one fair wage campaign, which has been pushing successfully to get the wage off of that two dollar an hour thing that we just kind of accepted. Like, of course, if you're a waiter or bartender, you should, and and you'll live on your tips. Um, now there's traction where. You're having even restauranteurs of conscience come together and support one fair wage, saying that, you know, we have to get to a living wage for workers. So I do think that the central worker moment has arrived. And so you're seeing wages are going up. Now, the problem is we have this inflation that's setting in at the same time. And so, of course, depending on the economist you talk to, uh, some economists that are close to the White House, like Jared Bernstein, will say, this is transitory. It's related to the distortions that came out of the pandemic. But like I said, it goes back to the underlying circumstance that workers are in demand and the leverage between capital and labor is tipping towards labor in the first time in my lifetime. Bob Henley is my guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WNYC.org. He's a, a regular contributor to our show, and we talk about a wide range of things. So let's talk about um, – I'm never sure whether to call it COP26 or COP26. Right. Well, Sounds it, like a condition, doesn't it? <laughs> it wrapped up with nations adopting the Glasgow Climate Pact. Uh but you get a feeling that uh, some countries aren't generally committed to to actually doing very much. Um, will President Biden's infrastructure plan do anything to protect the environment or, or combat climate change? Well, there was, of course, it's interesting because Pelosi put in an appearance there uh, at the end, over the weekend. And at that time offered his bona fides that the United States was serious, that they intended to tackle the one point eight five uh 
a trillion dollar Build Back Better plan, which includes a big piece for climate change. Uh, I think that there was, it seemed to me that there was an expression of disappointment that they didn't talk about an outright um, ending fossil fuels, but kind of more of the slow walk to the door mm. kind of thing that we've, that we've been seeing. With. And, and then I think they compromise on coal. Right, exactly. And so that's driven by Must China and India. Joe Manchin happy. Right, exactly. Now, what one of the things that's happening is that while the public sector gets all the attention, I do think that we are seeing, uh, for instance, a, reinvest, a reinvestment strategy that New York City and New York State is doing, where they're moving hundreds of billions of dollars of pension funds. And when you take it in the aggregate, it's a very big deal, out of fossil fuel stocks. That's happening. You are seeing insurance companies now require that companies have some kind of continuity plan related to dealing with the implications of, of global warming. So while it's important to continue sending the signal from government, the other piece of it is what's happening in the private economy. And that's real. That's happening and that's underway. Sharon Lerner recently reported in The Intercept on how the EPA withheld reports uh, about over 1,200 chemicals. Um, and isn't New Jersey one of the states most affected by chemical hazards in, in the ecosystem? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, I was born in Patterson, right? And so uh, we, the Great Falls, of course, the place that, uh, you know, uh, Hamilton founded the Society of Useful Manufacturing, a cult factory there. I mean, making and building things, when you make and build things, you spill things. And it's true that we have the highest Superfund um uh, number of sites, and that in many cases it's kind of turned into um, the money for reclamation goes to lawyers. Um, that said, I do think that you're seeing, um, and again, it's happening where people are demanding a certain kind of um, a consciousness, and you see it in the form of branding identification and even in the boardroom. So there is a kind of connection where people are making, like, okay, so you're gonna you want to make money in my community. What's your track record? And so um, I do think that this revolving door thing is getting more attention. It needs far more scrutiny. I mean, that's the other thing we have here is you have a situation, Democrats and Republicans, n neither party is exclusive to this, but where you have people that come up in an industry, lobby for that industry, go to work for government, and then do a full come around the revolving door on the other side. And sometimes they can do this a couple of times, depending on how long their work life is. And I, I do think that people are onto that now. But it directly ties back to campaign finance. And so that's that's the other piece. We have to keep holding uh, the politicians accountable for the sources of their um, for their campaign cash. If President Biden can get his build back better plan passed, will that do more to address climate change or other environmental problems like toxic chemicals? Um, well, it has to have this other piece, which is source reduction. So it's not enough that um you have uh, something coming from the top. It's not enough. So that's why, I mean, one of the things over the arc of my 40 years of reporting that, that kind of sprang up was the creation of an involuntary watershed associations. I mean, this is something that happened, you know, you have it on, along the Hudson, the Clearwater, you have it throughout the Passaic River Coalition. It's, it's um, you find that river systems around the country and increasingly around the world they developed this this uh, this social, this following. The people advocate for for the natural resource base, and so it's only by a combination of that kind of grassroots witnessing on behalf of the natural resource, combined with enlightened government, that you even have a chance. Uh, 
The economy remains sluggish. COVID is still causing disruptions. And international news from COP26 to Afghanistan and China is is uh, really depressing. Uh, if Biden can't win on Build Back Better, what might that portend for the 2022 midterm elections, which people are already predicting will probably largely go to the Republicans? Well, I think that, um, of course, you, you make a statement now about where you think are, things are going to be in a while. One of the things that um, You can't predict Democrats, the future, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think that you can get a sense of the direction of things. And it's true that there's some headwinds here. Certainly the price of oil uh, in terms of what it means, you know, you have uh, well over $3 a gallon. Uh, you do have um, inflation. And then also this frustration that for any price, you can't get things that you that you need in terms of logistics. All of that is boiling up. So it's important. Uh, Obama um, and I going back to what happened with Obama, right? Like, so I think that during that period of time when he came out of the recession, he managed to give us a sense of momentum, although it certainly left behind many people. They projected a sense that they were moving forward. And so the critical thing here is for uh, Biden to be able to do that with COVID. And so it really begins and ends with that. And and that that's a problem. I mean, right now, you have OSHA stepping forward after being missing in action through the whole pandemic, which is a whole other story. You have them asserting this rule that there should be either a test or a vaccination for employers of 100 or more by January 4th. And bammo, they're stopped at the mid-level federal court level, I suspect, by Trump-era judges. And we still are dealing with the legacy of what I think is the highest crime and misdemeanor of Mr. Trump's presidency was his pitting the states against each other in response to COVID. And so that battle map created cynically by Trump endures now and haunts Obama. So you have, uh, you know, Governor DeSantis offering $5,000 premium signing for police officers who want to come on down to Florida if they don't want to get vaccinated. You have Governor Abbott in Texas fighting any kind of basic public health measure. So that would be my concern. If, if I was in the White House looking at that, the inability to move this country together into the other side of the pandemic, that's going to be the whole ballgame in terms of the 22. 2022 election. We have very little time left because I'm going to have to spend some time trying to get people to support the station. But I was wondering about political ads. I thought that uh, the campaign against Jack Chitterelli, for example, was rather strong and pointed, and yet he did very well. So do political ads even matter very much these days? Well, one of the things is that um, I do think that, remember, Murphy was fighting a curse. I think the the last governor elected, Democrat elected to reelected was Governor Byrne. Yes. So since Florio, they had been losing. There was this traumatic event in New Jersey um, that happened with with the pandemic and particularly, I mean, well, I would see by grassroots. By the way, point out that Brendan Byrne was 1977. So we're talking about right, right. a long time ago. And, and, and also, I mean, Murphy did some things that just it should have, you know, you should have lost in the sense that I think in the middle of the pandemic, he went to his European yeah. uh, villa. So but the bottom line is that he didn't get his base out. But Chiarelli did galvanize that uh, Trump base. that was already on the march from 2020. We got to leave it there, unfortunately, Bob. Uh, love talking with you. Oh, I have uh, a great time. Thanks. Thanks and so much. Uh, I recommend uh, your book, 
people, you might want to check it out. Stuck Nation, can the United States change course on our history of choosing prophets of a people? Listen to Bob on Monday mornings on BAI or, or check him out in all of those uh, different places that I mentioned <laughs> earlier on Twitter and um, at uh, Salon, the chief leader, etc. Thanks again, Bob. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Leonard. And that, unfortunately, brings us to the end of our show. We just ran out of time. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. You can access our archive of over 500 past shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past shows at LeonardLocatedLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a, a moment to ask you to support the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Lodge and all the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this whole thing going. WBAI relies 100% on listener contributions, so please step up and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212. 212- 209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique and deaf content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's 212-209-2950. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year is to become a sustaining member for $10, $15, whatever you choose, uh, what we call a BAI buddy. But however you choose to donate, whether it's as a BAI buddy or a one-time donation, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of London Lopez at large. And our great thanks to everyone who is helping to keep us on the air through their generosity. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when gardening expert and regular contributor to our show, Pete Morosky, will be taking your calls on how to cope with the unpredictable weather that we've been having this harvest season. We'll see you then.